at a rural hovel in southwest France. One night, after a big meal and all that wine, we settled down on the sofa and she told me a story. It was something that had happened to her brother. He'd been working on an oil platform and had returned to Edinburgh for some R&R. Met these two guys in a pub and they said they were heading to a party. He could go with them if he liked. But when they arrived at the abandoned flat, well, he started to sober up fast. Not fast enough, though. They tied him to a chair, taped a plastic bag over his head, and walked out. Eventually, he was able to rip his hands free, tear the bag open, and run gasping to the nearest police station. The cops accompanied him back to the abandoned tenement flat, but couldn't explain what had happened. He hadn't been robbed. The modus operandi was new to the officers. There was no motive for the assault. Lorna just shrugged, tipping the dregs of the bottle into her glass. And that's the story, she said. But I knew it wasn't. It was only the beginning of a story. The tale gnawed away at me. I needed to know why it had happened. I needed to give the incident some closure. And if that meant composing a 500-page novel around it, so be it. I had my first chapter, after all, though I never did find out what Lorna's brother thought of his fictional equivalent. As I was writing it, the book went through a number of working titles, including The Whispering Rain and Dead Crude, both of which became chapter titles instead. I'd managed to find time for a research trip back to Scotland, taking in Aberdeen but not Shetland. For the Shetland scenes, I had recourse to guidebooks. I also didn't get to make a helicopter flight to an oil rig, but found the next best thing in an Aberdonian author called Bill Curtin, who had worked in that field and was able to furnish me with as much detail as I needed to make Rebus's trip on a paraffin budgie realistic. Oil companies were generous in the amount of promotional literature they sent me, perhaps slow to realise that I was unlikely to be singing their praises in what was to be, after all, a crime novel. I'd grown up in a coal mining town, where coal itself had been referred to as black diamonds. Oil was sometimes called black gold. And to get across this sense of the importance of the industry, I decided I needed a final title with the word black in it. Well, my previous novel, Let It Bleed, had used the title of a Rolling Stones album, and it so happened they had another called Black and Blue. Black for oil, blue for the cops the boys in blue of popular lore. Rebus would take at least one beating in the course of the book too, leaving him black and blue all over. I had my title. One further ingredient, however, had been missing from my work up until this point. Anger. My son Kit had come into the world in July 1994. There had been no sign of any problems during Miranda's pregnancy. But when he was three months old, we began to wonder why he didn't move around much. At six months, our local GP in France was concerned too. And at around the age of nine months, we knew Kit had some serious problems. There were long, twice-weekly drives to the nearest children's hospital for tests, and longer drives still to the main paediatric facility in Bordeaux. My French was never as good as Miranda's. I would drive home full of questions frustrated by my inability to use language properly, fired up at the joke God seemed to be playing on us. 
and I would climb the rickety wooden ladder which took me through the trapdoor and into the cobwebbed attic of our old farmhouse. Nothing up there but a computer and some maps and photos of Edinburgh. I would sit down and try to get back into the book I was writing, the book which would eventually become black and blue. And suddenly I was in charge of this fictional universe. I was able to play God. Language started working for me again, and I used Rebus as my punch bag, raining physical and psychological blows down on him. As a result of which, Black and Blue became a much tougher book than my previous efforts, and left me feeling better too. The book also became a source of wish fulfilment, which is why when Greenpeace needed a band of world stature to front a gig in Aberdeen, they opted for the dancing pigs rather than U2 or REM. The dancing pigs, you see.